Hello, and I'm here with Shad White, our state auditor. Shad, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate, appreciate you having me. Now, um, Jackson. Jackson has been in the news for lots of reasons. Some of them, I'm afraid, have not been really good reasons. There's been a, a, lot, of, a lot of homicide this year. And in fact, tragically, um, Jackson, Mississippi is now in uh, per capita terms, the murder capital of America. Uh, what, what do you think we could do about this? Well, first of all, you're exactly right. The numbers are staggering and it's really heartbreaking when you think about the victims uh, of these terrible, terrible crimes. So looking back, Jackson was the per capita leader in homicides for any major, me major metro area in the United States in 2021. We've had a ton of homicides this year as well. Just this past weekend, a five-year-old little girl was killed in Jackson. It's just tragic. You read these stories and, and your heart breaks for the families that are involved. Really, people have, I think, overlooked the fact that not only is Jackson a per capita crime leader, but Jackson's numbers are dragging the entire state upward in terms of per capita deaths due to homicide. So the CDC ranks states based on per capita deaths due to homicide. And Mississippi is actually number one among states now. I had somebody tell me the other day, well, that's just because we don't have that many people and we're a rural state. No, that's not true. Go look at West Virginia, go look at Iowa, go look at other rural states with small populations. We have a crime problem, specifically in Jackson, specifically in Hines County, and, and it's creating a ton of victims and it's awful, it's awful to see. So to go to your more fundamental question, Douglas, you know, what are we gonna do about this? What can the state, what can the city of Jackson, what can anyone do about this? The most important and most basic finding from research on crime is that more police officers on the ground equals less crime. More police officers equals less crime. This is an incredibly robust finding over many, many studies. The Manhattan Institute has actually put together a lot of these studies and chronicled how this has been proven over and over and over again. So we did a little work in the state auditor's office looking through some of this research and, and based on what we have seen in the research on criminology and on the role of law enforcement officers, every new 100 police officers put out onto the street equates to between six and 10 homicides prevented. So we know what part of the answer is here, especially in the short run, is more police officers on the street. Do, do you think we also need to have an honest conversation about the profile of this crime and perhaps accept that number one, it tends to be gang related, not always, but often. And, and number two, if we accept that, we then need uh, what you might call a targeted policing approach where we actually, you know, if there were two, 300 bad guys in Jackson that the police went after, I, I suspect that would have a dramatic impact on the crime rate. Do you think we need this honest conversation about targeted policing? 100% we need an honest conversation. And of course, we have got to funnel these resources. If we put 100 new police officers on the street, we have got to funnel those resources to the places where crime is the worst. I think what you're getting at is, is a point about the fundamental root of this crime. Is it gang related? Is it what are the drivers that are pushing these numbers up? And, and I'll add another one to the conversation. I think a lot of this is rooted in the fact that we have so many broken homes in Mississippi. We have so many kids being raised in homes without daddies, and they're being raised in homes without discipline. So all of a sudden, when they get to be military age males, and it's typically males, when they get to be military age males between the ages of 17 and let's say 40, their propensity, according to research, to commit crime is through the roof. So what are we going to do to break that cycle? 
too. We have to have a real honest conversation about the role of fathers in our, in our society, about what it means to teach your kids discipline. And, and if we are not going to be able to push fathers back into the home, then what are we going to do for these kids who are growing up in broken homes? And how are we going to give them discipline and structure and a vision for a better life that does not involve getting involved in a gang? that does not involve using a gang as their support structure, as, uh, as their place where they go to get mentors. I'll tell you one little idea that, that I have seen work, and it's a small program in Jackson Public Schools. I think it ought to be expanded. I think it ought to be in every F-rated school district in the entire state. It's their JROTC military program. So what happens in this JROTC military program is that you take kids in high school. Many of them come from poverty. Many, many of them come from broken homes. You pair them up with retired military service members. And those service members teach them discipline. They teach them to show up on time. They teach them classes on military history. They, they take them on field trips to go see, here's a career path that you could choose. Here's what a plumber does every day. Here's what a computer programmer does every day. Here's what an accountant does every day. The results from this program are incredible, especially when you compare the results that these kids have obtained versus the general population of Jackson Public Schools. The kids in the JROTC military program have a 100% graduation rate. They have a 95% college placement or skills program rate. I mean, this is through the roof compared to the general population. So we've got to get at these problems. Might there not, with programs like that, be a slight self-selection bias in sure. the sense that a, a kid who signs up to that program is, is probably not going to be a problem in the first place? Um, it, it's totally possible. But also, I think we have to acknowledge if you get more kids in a program like that, in a high school, that can become a cool thing to do. So then it can generate it can generate a magnet that attracts the kids that maybe are more on the margins. So absolutely, 100%, there could be a selection bias. But two, if we're looking for ideas and we want something that's got some kind of data behind it, this has got data behind it. This program actually gets audited by a team out of Fort Knox every few years, and they come in and they make sure that they're hitting their metrics for attendance. I mean, one, these kids are just in school which means they're not on the street when they're, when they're in this program. So we, we know that some of these numbers are important. We know the numbers are valid and, and we've got to look at programs like that that can change the cycle of poverty in some of these areas. You're, you're talking about interventions way kind of upstream, if you like, from, from crime. And we talked a little bit about more policing and targeted policing to tackle crime. But looking downstream from crime, I mean, put it bluntly, if, if if the prosecuting authorities were as aggressive at bringing people to trial as you are, um, I suspect Hines County might not have this problem. You know, it doesn't matter how effective the police in Jackson are at chasing criminals through the street. If we don't chase them through the courts, That's we, right. That's we, exactly we have a problem. Right. What, what can we do about that? Well, to illustrate your point perfectly, we know that we have a catch and release problem here in the city of Jackson. So for example, a few months ago, there's a guy named Jermaine White who had been arrested he bonded out without actually paying bail. Somehow he got out. I had another warrant out for his arrest, but was still allowed out on the street. And then he went about four miles from Fondren and murdered two women over there. If you go fast forward a few more months, we had a shooting at the Mudbugs Festival right here in the middle of Jackson. One of those people who was engaged in the shooting had previously been arrested and then let out for armed robbery. So we know we have a catch and release pro problem. And yes, more police on the street creates a deterrent. It, it, shows, it shows force. It shows that if you do something wrong, you're more likely to be arrested. But also, once we arrest folks, we've got to push them through the criminal justice system. 
and make sure if they're found guilty that they get held accountable. We know that this is an issue. And I think we could have a long conversation about, okay, well, is it the prosecutors who are overburdened? Do they need more prosecutors? Uh, are they just not doing their jobs? Are the judges overburdened? Do we need more judges to adjudicate cases faster? A lot of different, a lot of different conversations to be had about this one specific justice problem, this criminal justice problem. But, but I'll throw this out there. We know that each individual homicide costs taxpayers between about $900,000 to $1.2 million. So one, whatever it's gonna cost us as a society to adjudicate these cases is probably gonna be cheaper than the cost of the homicide. So let's invest where we need to. The city of Jackson needs to invest its resources. Let's invest in the criminal justice system, get these cases through quickly, hold prosecutors and judges accountable for, for holding these folks accountable, putting them in prison and keeping them there for a while to get them off the street. And then you'll start to see savings in the long run because you will have prevented the catch and release homicides that are driving up costs for the taxpayers in the first place. To be fair, I think the state Supreme Court and the um, uh, governor and the speaker have allocated money for judges to be appointed to come in alongside yes. current judges and help with that. I mean, yes. I, I kind of, as a Jackson resident, I don't really care who does it. I don't really care how they do it. We need those judges. We need courts to be administered efficiently. And if the people administering the courts are struggling, we need to bring in people alongside them to do it. It's a great first step. And that'll take a little bit of time to get off the ground. So they've put aside, they've appropriated the money for those new judges and new prosecutors. They're going to have to have courtroom space to operate out of. So my understanding is they're going to start operating uh, out of out of facilities here in downtown Jackson that they've identified that they're setting up for court. So it's going to take some time to get off that, that off the ground, but you're absolutely right. I think the governor's taking a leadership role. The legislature has too. Now, uh, we just have to continue to focus on this because this is a huge issue for Mississippi. Mississippi is not going to succeed if its capital city is dangerous, period. On the issue of bail, um, I mean, my thoughts on bail is simply that, you know, bail, the assessment should be, number one, is this person going to show up in court when they're meant to? Number two, um, are they a risk to the public? And nothing else should really be taken into consideration. Should, is, is cash bail a problem? Should we, should, we, should we get rid of cash bail and only issue bail on the basis of risk assessment? You know, I, I think that's a great conversation to have. I do think that those risks that you identified are the most important ones to consider. What you hear often is that, well, we have to, we have to have the option of bail because our prisons are overcrowded and because uh, the prison, the main prison here in Hines County, Raymond, is under scrutiny from the federal government. I'll push back a little bit on that and say, just because uh, a prison is under scrutiny does not give us it doesn't, it doesn't, it shouldn't open the door for us to say, well, let's just let people out. That's not the right answer, right? We, we have to find a suitable place to hold and detain these folks while they wait on trial. We need to make sure they, they face speedy justice. So they need to go to trial quickly in order to, you know, properly protect their rights and properly adjudicate this in, a, in as fast a way as possible. And, and then two, on top of that, if we cannot solve the problem with prisons here in Hines County, I've heard sheriffs, DAs, folks in surrounding counties say that there is prison space available in surrounding counties. We just have to, Hines County and, and other entities inside Hines County have to work out deals with these other counties to make sure that the prisoners are going there when there is overflow in Raymond, for example. So all of this to say, 
these are workable problems. All of these things that we're identifying are workable problems, but my position is one, we've got to work them. So we as a society, as taxpayers, as the legislature, everybody involved, we've got to work these problems. And two, I think we have to be really honest about the causes. And we have to be really honest about the effects of this crime. We cannot take our eye off this conversation. I think a lot of folks would prefer that we just not talk about crime here in Jackson, and that is not fair to the victims here in the city. I think that's so true. I think in the past, there was a sort of thought that, you know, people outside the immediate vicinity of the crime could just kind of ignore it and it would just not affect them. I, I, I know you're very focused on tackling the brain drain. I suspect one of the reasons why Mississippi is not an attractive destination for young people to work is because the capital city is it's basically a donut. The, the, the center of it is hollowed out. And, um, you know, this affects everyone. You, you don't need to live in Jackson to be harmed by the criminality in Jackson. It, it hits the whole state. That's exactly right. Well, you think about it this way. We know that for the college graduates that we keep here in the state, 30% of them come to work in Hines County. Not necessarily live, but they come to work here in Hines County. That's the number one top destination for new college graduates here in the state of Mississippi. Number two is Harrison County on the coast at 6%. So there's a huge drop off. Tons of people, tons of young, talented people are coming to work in Hines County. It's our best magnet for talent. What happens if this crime wave doesn't stop? It means that that magnet is going to turn off. And those kids who are maybe coming to work in Hines County now, you know, a few years from now, a similar student graduating university is going to think about going to Atlanta or Dallas or Chicago or somebody somewhere else. And, and, you know, we really cannot allow that to happen. I grew up in rural Mississippi, far from Jackson. And I can remember growing up, my dad and my grandfather would say things, why do we care about what goes on in Jackson? That's two hours away. You know, we're fine and safe here. And the reason why folks like that are starting to care now is that their kids are moving to Jackson. Sure. I moved to Jackson. My, my sister moved to Jackson area. So, so this is a huge problem for everybody. A, a friend of mine at the weekend um, just told me that, that they're moving to Austin. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, yep. it's a real, it affects everyone. This. Um, on a brighter note, now, if I can put this delicately, perhaps in the past, Mississippi had a slight reputation for being a little bit, occasionally uh, had a little bit of corruption and it had <laughs> a little bit of a cozy old boy system. You are changing this. You are prosecuting people who misuse public money, and you've, you've been doing this very aggressively. Tell me a little bit about this. What's inspired you to suddenly um, let in sunlight um, and um, you know, expose all this, this, this wrongdoing? I mean, some of, some of the cases you brought are quite extraordinary. It's been an interesting four years. I've actually been in office now for four years, hard to believe. And, and you know, when I came into this office, we knew some basic facts. We knew that every time states are ranked by their number of public corruption convictions per capita, Mississippi's always in the top five. The University of Illinois at Chicago will produce these rankings every few years. And, and the, the states that are in the top five are not states you want to be known uh, to be a part of. So it's, it's Illinois, it's Louisiana, it's, it's Mississippi. So states that historically have been known for corruption. So we knew we had an issue. Uh, Mississippi has a lot of the basic ingredients of fraud, you hate to say it. So we have a small population dispersed over a pretty wide geographic area, lots of places, small offices for folks to hide and think nobody's watching. So I have a personal philosophical belief. It is when we put a stop to any example of public corruption, we have to tell folks about it because telling folks about it 
one, it, it tells the taxpayers that we're working here in the state auditor's office, but two, it creates a deterrent. And we know this based on research. The Association of Certified Fraud Examiners has said that the number one way to prevent white collar crime is to increase the perception of detection, increase the sense among criminals that they might be caught if they are doing something wrong. So, so my view is not only do we have to work hard, take on tough cases, get results, but I've also got to tell the taxpayers and tell other people who are committing white collar crime about this. And, and as you said, we've achieved good results here in the last few years. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had a guilty plea in what is now the largest public fraud case in state history involving welfare dollars actually uh, here in Hines County. We just last year saw an investigation that we did result in the largest civil settlement resulting from any investigation in the Office of the State Auditor's history. Our defendants have been sentenced to hundreds of years of prison time. So we're just gonna keep going. The thing to do now is to keep going. What, in the four years, what's been the most outrageous example of, of fraud? Is there one particular case where you thought, wow, this is, this is, this is a record? Uh, it's, it's certainly our welfare investigation. And, and I have to be careful about how much I discuss it because while uh, four people have pled guilty in that case, two more are awaiting trial right now. So, and there's a gag order in that, in one of those two trials. So I have to be careful about how much I talk about it, but, but I'll say, you know, the basic facts that have been discussed publicly already. We did an audit and an investigation both and identified uh, about $96 million worth of misspent money. Some of that money had been taken due to fraud. And so we ended up arresting six individuals uh, in early 2020. Four of those have now pled guilty. The amount of money taken due to fraud according to the admissions made in court by these folks who have pled guilty is into the millions of dollars. And, and one, this is, this is tragic because of the magnitude of the money. It's just a lot of money to, to have lost in Mississippi. But two, it's tragic because this money is intended to go to the poorest people here in the state. And, and we all know, of course, that Mississippi has a high poverty rate. We have tons of folks who assumed that that money was going to those individuals, and it simply was not. So uh, that's, been the, that's been the most noteworthy case that we've had in my tenure. But, you know, we also have these small cases, what you might call small cases, $100,000 here, $50,000 there. People stealing from entities out in Mississippi that, that really perform very important functions for society collecting water bills in order to make sure people have safe drinking water, community colleges that are training people to go into the workforce. Money is being stolen from these institutions and, and we have got to do as much as possible to prevent that money from leaking out the door because we don't have a ton of spare tax revenue lying around in the state of Mississippi. We've got to use every single dollar uh, as effectively as possible. Yeah, sometimes people think white collar crime when it involves public money is a victimless crime. But as you point out, it, it's not a victimless crime at all. Um, not at all. People who pay the not at all. are often the poorest Mississippians. Um, just quickly, you, you deal with white collar crime. Um, I, I can't help thinking if only you dealt with every other type of crime, we would, we would have a lower crime rate in Mississippi. Is there any chance of that? Probably not. Uh, that would involve the legislature dramatically expanding my legal authority, which I'm not sure there's a ton of appetite to do. Uh, but but I, would, I will I say vote, I would vote for that. But I'm the one Mississippian <laughs> who doesn't get a vote, so <laughs> we'll we'll work on that too. Uh, you know the the thing that the thing that I think um, comes out of all this work that we've been doing is taxpayers respond really well when you show them that you're just doing your job 
and you're working really hard and you're doing that job well, it raises the standard for everyone else, right? So I, I think that we've got some great DAs in the state of Mississippi, but by arresting folks and showing people that this is going on, it pushes the DAs to say, okay, you know what? They've handled their piece of it. The taxpayers appreciate it. Now they're demanding that I handle my piece of it. I think the judges are going to say the same thing. So, so yes, I think, I think doing your job well sort of raises the tide uh, for all boats around the state. And, and that's what I'm focused on. You know, it, it would be very easy, I guess, for me to go over and say, okay, now that I've, now that I've uh, started to work on white collar crime, uh, will you let me handle election fraud too? And I'd, I'd probably get my hand slapped over the legislature. But I think by handling white collar crime and, and focusing on this, you raise taxpayers' expectations of, of, of enforcement across the board. So that's what I'm dedicated to doing. Do you, do you think there's much electoral fraud in Mississippi? I think it's hard to say. Uh, I, I know that you look around the country, you see tons of examples of electoral fraud. I know that there are cases of electoral fraud in Mississippi that have been brought forward to the attorney general's office. You've seen a couple of small cases here and there. Uh, I do worry about it for the same reason that I worry about white collar crime. Mississippi has a small population spread out over a relatively large geographic area, lots of small elections offices, lots of small polling places. It would be very, very easy and tempting for someone to say, I'm going to fill out these 20 absentee ballots and have somebody notarize them. And as long as we're in on this together and we conspire to not tell anybody else, it would be very easy for them to submit all those ballots and have them counted, which would be improper and would be a felony here in the state of Mississippi. So yes, I worry about it. We have seen cases that are exactly like the one I described, uh, but uh, what we know is that uh, a little bit of enforcement can go a long way. If we can get some headway on enforcing the law in those cases, I think that you would, you would put a ton of fear into folks who are thinking about perpetuating electoral fraud. Shad, it's wonderful to see such leadership and it's just what Mississippi needs. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts. And um, anything else you wanted to add? No, thank you for having me. Thank I'm, you for the work you all do. It's I appreciate I appreciate you coming on. All the best. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thanks.